Hello everyone, it's October 24th, 2023. This week we're taking a close look at Gaganyan's in-flight abort test. It's another small step for ISRO. Yes, the moon is one of their destinations and they have a timetable for putting people on it. But for now, let's just talk about the abort test, one step at a time, and lift off. Of the tower. Welcome to episode 431 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So you got some shuttle trivia for us, right, Dennis? Yeah. Do we need a, a game show theme song? Can't hurt. <laughs> yeah. So I've thought it'd be fun to gamify this a little bit and um, uh, or I guess make it like a little trivia because, you know, who doesn't like trivia? Uh, at least space nerds tend to like trivia. Yeah. So I had come across on uh, the NASA spaceflight forums uh, in, in the public section uh, on uh, the space shuttle Q and A, and so this this what I thought was an interesting number because you figured it had to exist, and so I just kind of figured I'd ask you, and you guys can guess, and everybody can guess at home and in the chat. So the question is, how many pounds is each astronaut allotted to bring onto the shuttle? Oh, of personal mass. There. Human body, right? Their weight, their suit, oh. their personal effects, any kind of stuff that they're going to be bringing. Every every crew member evidently is allotted up to a certain numerical value. So, so your body mass cuts into your personal mass. It does. <laughs> if you wow, that's got to suck for the oh, that's bigger, interesting. For the bigger ones, right? So yeah, Mike, Mike Massimino. Doesn't get the bring yeah, as much as other people. Is up there with a <laughs> tissue. <laughs> while while Garrett Reisman is bringing in, you know, his PlayStation. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no, no. I I love the idea of Mike like having to snap his tooth his toothbrush in half. Uh, do it doing like the whole like Mister Bean packing routine. Uh, okay, so in total, so that's that's body and uh, spacesuit hardware. And personal. Is there another big category? I think that's that's most of it. But I guess, yeah, anything that's, I guess, uh, unique to the person, right, is another way to think of it. Well, if we're including spacesuit hardware, it's got to be in the, like, 300 pounds or something, right? Yeah, that's what I was going to start with, was what is the suit the suit weigh? I don't. I don't think the suit weighs three hundred pounds. I mean the the pumpkin suit. Well, no, but I'm saying I'm saying total. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So like, so the suit and like all of your. You're like Eclis hookups or like the, the, you know, the, the air and cable hookups. I'm guessing all that together is probably like a hundred pounds. Does that seem reasonable, David? That sounds reasonable to me. Yeah. Cause a hundred pounds is quite a bit and yes, those yeah. suits are big and bulky, but can't be They're much big and bulky. That. But I think like what you wear on your body minus the helmet is probably under like five pounds. And then the helmet probably adds maybe like eight or 10 pounds. And then I'm assuming, well, I guess they carry on everything, right? Like they walk down the ramp with like a, a briefcase. So maybe a hundred pounds is actually too high. Okay. Okay. So then, then maybe, maybe let's say like 40 pounds for their uh, pressure suit. Does that sound good? I'd still say like a total considering how heavy people can be. I mean, depending on your, like someone yeah. like Massimino. <laughs> so, I mean, unless he's given an extension of some sort, like, well, let, let's call, let's, let's call Massimino like what? 250. And, and here's what I would suggest. Uh, that takes us up to 290 pounds. So let's say that, and then let's come up with a reasonable number for how much personal mass Massimino would have been allotted and we can just add that in even though it's dependent on the total number like let's just come up with a reasonable number and add it to our 290 does that sound okay mm -hmm. which i think actually i mean i don't know how much they bring up but i'd say probably about 300 maybe a little bit more than that in his case yeah i mean like i can't imagine that that they get more than 10 pounds worth of of personal mass like 10 pounds seems like a lot of personal so, so maybe we just make it an, around three hundred and call it call that our guess. That's what I'll go with. <laughs> I got nothing better. Yeah, and I f I feel like that was pretty close to like your your knee jerk reaction was like three hundred, and I like kind of worked through it and I came to something around the same number. Now, yeah, now, Dennis, final answer three hundred. Now I'm just gonna I'm gonna interject real quick just because this whole time I was furiously trying to go back and find that exact post, and it was and so here's here's the exact verbiage: four hundred fifty pounds was alloc. Oh, God damn, I'm an idiot. <laughs> so that's the answer, 450 pounds. Chris almost got it like to within a pound because he was trying to make the joke 420.69 pounds. But he changed it to 420, <laughs> which is still 
I believe the closest. Because what was your, what was your final answers for you guys? Three hundred. Three hundred. Yeah. So so I mean everybody got a pretty good ballpark. I'm such a knucklehead. I can't believe I, I started to say the answer as I all I wanted to read was X pounds was allocated for each crew member, which includes the person, food, clothing, suit, and personal items. Oh, all their food too. Yeah, so so Chris meant to type 420.69 pounds, and he had a typo, which has more numbers in it, uh, 450.6254 pounds. Mm-hmm. I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know how he did that one. I think he was trying to include the number 42 uh, <laughs> in addition to 420. Um, but 450.6254 pounds is on the money. It's a, it's a hair over, but this isn't uh, The Price is Right. Chris is our winner. Good job. <laughs> I mean, Chris, yeah, that, that job. is a very, very good typo. That, okay, cool. So so 450 pounds every astronaut or was that <laughs> Colin says the price is close. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so four, 450 pounds, was this for the entire shuttle program? Or did it ever change? Do you know? I don't know if it ever changed. Um, it was basically somebody just talking about how, you know, important getting the center of gravity is for the spacecraft. And mm. so they wondered, like, how do they account for the fact that different people weigh different amounts? And so uh, a senior uh, member on the forum, Jim, who replies all the time, like, and he has really super deep knowledge uh, from working for NASA or, or he might not work for NASA. He worked as part of the shuttle program. So he might have been like, you know, with one of the contractors. But in any event, his answers are typically very terse. And so the fact that we got a full sentence here instead of like, no, it was too much or even no, too much would have been like, you know, a typical answer to like a type of question like, hey, you know, blah, blah, blah. so anyway, yeah, 450 pounds was allocated for each crew member, including the flu- food, blah, yada, and doesn't remember if the seat's included. It's the best I got. So if the concern is the center of mass, does that mean that if you're putting something in the shuttle bay that you'll be bringing back, that would change how much you can bring? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that definitely affects how they uh, lay out the stuff within the payload bays. Yeah. They, they have to be very careful about that kind of stuff. But I mean, from an engineering standpoint, like it's really good to just be able to say, okay, each person weighs 450 pounds. Mm-hmm. And you take the number of crew members, multiply it by 450, and that's how much the the front of the shuttle weighs. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Really nice. And I suppose if it's, you know, for a single mission going up and you know who the crew are, you can take from one and give to the other, right? So if you have Massimino in there, he can take someone else's uh, food because he might oh. need it. <laughs> I mean, he's a big guy. Yeah, I don't see right? why I mean, not. It just all has to add up, right? <laughs> that makes sense. Gaganyan in-flight abort test. So we have a detailed uh, assessment of, I guess, that abort test. I wouldn't call it too detailed, but... Yeah, so Ben, what are some of those relevant details? <laughs> and not too yeah. many. Okay, so uh, as as per, we're going to talk about the history real quick. Um, Gaganyan is ISRO's uh, crew-rated uh, module. It's not their whole launcher system, right? It's, it's just their, their module, their crew capsule. And up until now, they have um, tested all of their abort motors. We'll talk about each of these abort motors in a little bit. Um, they did a suborbital reentry test, I think that uh, folks should remember. And that was with um, like a boilerplate, like engineering model. They also did a pad abort test, which I'm not sure we covered. Um, and now they're up to the in-flight abort test, which is like one of the biggest pre-crew fl- demo flight uh, milestones. Like this is a big one. So the, the launch more or less went off without a hitch. They had a couple of delays due to weather, which what are you going to do? Um, and then at T minus five seconds, they actually pulled a whole ass abort, uh, uh, launch abort. And it, it turns out to have been due to an, an anomaly during engine ignition. And like, we love this kind of abort, right? Like if you can tell that your engine isn't running properly and you can shut it down before you release those launch clamps that's showing really good launch capabilities maybe it says something negative about your engine maybe it doesn't but like that's a good capability to be able to demonstrate and then like speaking of their launch abilities uh they had an abort at ignition and they were able to recycle the launch and launch just an hour and 15 minutes after that abort um, and they had a fully successful launch. Um, really, really cool ability that they're showing off there. 
So the uh, the Gaganyan abort procedure looks pretty much like you'd expect. They have it's not a biconic capsule like Apollo. It's more of a uh, a shallow sloped. Uh, side module. It looks very much like Dragon, just in its overall like profile. And uh, it sits inside of sort of a, a bell-shaped or a, a conical launch shroud. And that's like very familiar from SLS, where it differs uh, from those two launch vehicles and borrows a little bit from, uh, from the Soyuz language, right? So Soyuz does its escape inside its whole fairing. The whole fairing takes off. Um, here, it does separate and uh, flies under that SLS-like shroud, or um, Orion-like shroud, but it has the grid fins that we're familiar seeing on uh, Soyuz. So to separate this vehicle during a, an in-flight abort, um, first they will separate from um, the the vehicle interface that mounts the vehicle to the top of the rocket. And then they will activate their HEMs, which are the high altitude escape motors. They also have low altitude escape motors. And those I believe are for the pad abort. So they have two separate sets of motors. Um, it's really easy to remember which one's which. The low altitude escape motors are lower down. They're actually contained inside the launch shroud and they uh, their nozzles are the the big protuberances you see on the side of that bell. And the high-altitude escape motors are up inside the tower. They're higher up. So they'll fire their high-altitude escape motors. Um, they will deploy the grid fins. And it's tough to say what the timing is. It seems to me like they need to deploy their grid fins shortly after those engines burn out in order to keep them stable in a nose forward configuration on the stream. They had like, they had a live stream. They didn't have video uh, that we got to see, uh, but they did have an animation. Um, and in the animation, they showed those grid fins deploying right away. However, in a, like a uh, press brochure document, which we'll have uh, linked in the show notes, they don't depict them deploying until after the launch shroud has been jettisoned. And I kind of suspect that that is incorrect, that their, their drawing is wrong, because that's a really easy thing to get wrong. It's harder to get that kind of a sequencing thing wrong um, in an animation that they're playing live off of real data, um, presumably off of real data. Um, additionally, the timings that I've seen, like the list of, of launch events, seem to support the deploy the grid fins early, uh, but they deploy their grid fins and then they separate from the CES, the, um, the, sh the whole shroud comes off um, and to um, separate it from the vehicle in space. They also fire the jettison motors, which they would use in during a nominal launch to get rid of that shroud. Okay. Right. So I know I just said that it's easy to remember which one is a low altitude and the high altitude escape motors, and it's because the low altitude is low and the high altitude is high. No, no, no. It's actually really hard to remember, as evidenced by the fact that I got it backwards. <laughs> um, so the, the high altitude escape motors are the ones in the shroud. The low altitude escape motors are the ones up in the tower. And the, the low altitude escape motor is actually really cool because it faces upwards. And I believe that was it Apollo that did this as well? I think Apollo's launch escape tower might have done this. So the the solid rocket motor, I mean, it's it's a big, chunky motor, faces up, and then it's got uh, three or four nozzles. Oh, it's got four nozzles that are arranged, you know, radially at forty five or at ninety degrees from each other, and then they point down. So they're they're diverting the thrust more than 90 degrees. It actually looks like it might be like 120 degrees. Um, and like that, that's a very interesting, uh, thing that you can do with solid motors, um, and is, is done in multiple places, uh, in like spaceflight, the, the spaceflight pantheon, the, the history of, of human spaceflight. So, right. So I, I listed three motors there. So there, there's the jettison motor that's way, way up at the top of the tower. Um, the low altitude escape motor, which is in the middle of the tower. And then the high altitude escape motors, which are in the bell, in the shroud. 
And then as you can guess, there are a couple of extra motors. Um, they are the pitch motors and those are way, way up, uh, at the very tippy top of the tower. And like that, that's, a heck of a lot of motors to have. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, when, especially when you compare it to like Dragon. Uh, Crew Dragon has got four engines. That's it. You escape and you do your big burns on orbit and your, uh, you know, your um, altitude raising maneuvers at station. Like all that is done with just the four liquid motors. And this, since we're using solid motors and yada, yada, but it's interesting that they've split out the low altitude and the high altitude escape motors. Those are two separate structures. And like they, they actually use both of them uh, when doing a high altitude escape, I believe they only use a low altitude for, for pad aborts. They just use the, the low, low altitude, I believe. You know why that is though? No clue. I mean, it's gotta be, it's gotta be some sort of like sequencing or thrust requirement, but I, I'm not, I'm not sure. And I haven't thought it through well enough to give you a guess. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I could imagine just the, the, the broad picture that it's, it's going to be a different flight profile when you're in deep in the atmosphere versus higher up in the atmosphere. And I guess maybe also the fact that when you're higher up in the atmosphere, you do have a rocket chasing after you, underneath you potentially. <laughs> right. Well, here, here's here's a uh, here's, here's an, an, an idea about why maybe they wouldn't fire both of them. Just imagine if the low altitude motors on their own have enough thrust to pull your capsule away from the vehicle and your high altitude ones have enough thrust to do that, then firing them at the same time is probably too much thrust. Okay. So maybe, maybe I misspoke. They after reviewing the materials, it looks like they don't actually fire the low altitude escape motor. So they're going to pick one or the other. If you're at high altitude, fire the high altitude. If you're at low altitude, fire the low altitude. And never the twain shall meet. Um, when I was looking at their timelines, it looked like they had them firing the high altitude first and then the low altitude later. But I must have gotten the acronyms confused. Um, CJM for the CES jettisoning motor versus LEM, the low altitude escape motor. I, m I must have uh, misread an acronym somewhere. And presumably they tested the the low altitude ones during that pad abort test. Yes, I would agree. And yeah, looking at the at the timeline, the the grid fins apparently deploy pretty quickly after those uh, high altitude escape motors have ignited. Maybe after they've burned out. I don't know what their their burn duration is. But yeah, I mean, like it, it's a it feels like a really solid good system. Like everything seems pretty cool. Like we said, the suborbital reentry test was with an engineering model. This flight was launched with a higher fidelity crew module, but it's still um, like an engineering module, an engineering model. Uh, there were no seats inside of it. There were no, you know, uh, mannequins or anything. Um, and in fact, in one of the documents, they actually show that they had uh, buoyancy what was it like buoyancy assistance? Uh, buoyancy augmentation system or BF. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, they crammed a lot of avionics in here. Also, they didn't bother burning a heat shield. And instead, they went with a really snazzy uh, Isro yellow orange, like a saffron color uh, painted. It's it's the same shape, but it's like painted this lovely orange color. And it looks like almost like a safety orange, but it's just like a little more vibrant, a little more like creamsicle color. Um, and it, it makes me really happy. I, I think it's a little lighter than the orange on the Indian flag, but uh, it's it's a really good joyful color that I like. Now, now Ben, things were going smoothly for too long, so I kind of want to <laughs> screw with everything. Look at the video I just posted on the pad abort test and tell me what mm -hmm. you see firing. Is it, wait, is it both? It, the Maybe that's why you were thinking both. It looks like they fire the it's high both. altitude ones, yeah. like a fraction there of a we go before the low altitude. There ones. we go. Okay. So that's why I thought that they fired both of them on this test is because they did them. Uh, I must've been looking at a document for the pad abort mm. and it makes sense that they would do them like you would think that the in-flight abort would need more thrust than the pad abort, but you probably need more impulse from a pad abort to make sure that you get enough altitude for the parachutes to work. I'd actually be more afraid of the pad abort because when there's going to be the boom, the boom only has one place to go, which is up and around you. Whereas when the rocket is exploding in midair, at least you got some velocity initially away from it. And so the fireball can try yeah. to catch up to you, but at least you got that initial <laughs> motion trying to... 
help you. Yeah, ne- never mind having to escape a, a rocket that's already under thrust. You know, you're cutting out so much mass that that's not that big of a deal, I, I would think. Mm. So, so there you go. Okay, thank you for for fixing that part of my brain because it kind of hurt. <laughs> you you had seen that they all fire. So, so the at this point, the last <laughs> the last point in the timeline that we reached was the this crew module or crew module stand in um, separating and beginning to fall. Right. So obviously they deploy parachutes and they deploy a ton of parachutes. They do drug shoots. Uh, then they do pilot shoots for the main shoots. And it's just like parachutes on parachutes on parachutes. Um, and they successfully landed in the ocean and went and recovered the thing. The only problem is that the vehicle did float upside down in the water. Um, and this reminds me very much of Apollo. They, when they modeled the Apollo capsule, they found that it was stable in the upright position and that's where it really wanted to be. But it was actually a bi-stable system, sort of like a light switch, right? A light switch doesn't want to be in the middle. You can kind of get to hover in the middle, but for all intents and purposes, it's either up or it's down. And if it's not one of those two, it will snap to the nearest option. And for Apollo, they found that the capsule was bi-stable in both orientations, upside down and right side up. It preferred to be in the right side up situation, but especially if there were heavy seas, it could be flipped over and turtle, right? It'll not be able to get back up. Uh, metaphorical turtle legs flailing in the air. Um, and they called them, I believe, position one and position two or stable position one and two. Um, and they were concerned about it enough that they added those um, inflatable balloons to the top of Apollo, which you will see. Uh, if you have the Saturn V Lego model. I'm pretty sure it's got three little orange balls that go on the top of the thing, um, which is kind of how I, uh, (laughs) how I remember it now, uh, how I, how I visualize it now. Um, but it sounds like, um, the crew module here for the Gaganyan module is also sort of bi-stable. And because it's got a wider top, uh, relative to its its bottom diameter, I kind of suspect that it is more susceptible to stabilizing itself upside down. In any event, it sounds like they're going to have inflatable flotation devices um, in the future, and they just didn't have them on this flight. And so that that seems like that's not going to be an issue for us. So uh, coming up in the future, Dennis, did you want to did you want to do this one? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So they have a very ambitious uh, schedule uh, for trying to prove out and ultimately get to sending human beings into orbit. Next up is, uh, this was right, TV D1, uh, Test Vehicle Demonstration 1, and they'll have D2 through D4 later this year and into next year, uh, currently planned for. And then next year in 2024. Do you know what they're targeting for D2 through D4? Yeah, so here's the source. And from what I'm reading in the source, it's saying D3 and D4 to test critical technologies paramount for the success of the mission. So might as well not said anything at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wikipedia just says uncrewed mission to test flight parameters for D2 and then nothing for D3 and D4. So, okay. Yeah. yeah it's because it's all the same source saying D1 and D2 are in 23 and D3 and D4 and 24. And they're to quote test critical technologies paramount for the success of the mission. I think maybe that's contingent on how well the, you know, yeah. the D2 test goes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It could be. Okay, so after the Ds, you were just starting to move on. Yeah, so after yeah after D4, then also in 2024, they're going to try to have their, or hoping to have their G1 through G3 missions, which are uncrewed still, but in this case, they will actually have the, I guess, a proper full-on Gaganyan capsule. And so not boilerplate, not a mock-up that has buoyancy augmented systems in it and whatnot <laughs> straight up you know, life jacket. here's the capsule see how the capsule does and yeah and these are actually going to be getting orbital and so who knows maybe we will actually see a um a, a real well no i guess by definition if the, those those tvd tests have the test vehicle so the g1 through g3 all planned for 2024 should have the Gaganyan capsule. And and when you said TVD, the TV is the rocket they launched it on test vehicle, and it led to sort of the the oddly bulbous look, right, where the the rocket is skinnier than the capsule on top of it. Hmm. Um, and um, 
when they move on to their orbital flights, they're going to start, I believe, with LVM, uh, LVM-3. And then they actually have another rocket, which we'll talk about in a second, that they're talking about bringing online. But that's what the TV is. It's that small test rocket. You're right. Thank you. So, so that doesn't rule out then that the test vehicle little rocket might be pushing a real Gaganyan capsule before they do these orbital G1 through G3 tests. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what the, the D flights are doing is, is flying there. Yeah. Could be. Maybe that's D only D4 or D3 and D4. Who knows? But uh, that'll be fun to check out. And we don't have to wait too long, <laughs> at least if they s- stick to the schedule. But then, yeah. So then after three orbital tests of the Gaganyan capsule, then hopefully in 2025, they will have the H1 mission, which is to go and actually send the first crew to orbit. So that would be, I mean, such a big deal, right? I mean, when was uh, Shenzhou? 2003 was the first crewed launch. So yeah, about 20 years and we might have yet another country capable of sending their own astronauts into orbit on its own launch vehicles. It's been quite a while. And so very cool to see. And it, it's really interesting that ISRO looks like they're going to beat, unless something drastic happens, ISRO is going to beat Europe, uh, ESA getting people into space. And, you know, that that's not like that big of a, of a thing to note, right? Because <laughs> ESA is very much about cooperation within ESA, within uh, ESA. And so it, it makes a lot of sense that they would be buying room from other countries outside of the EU. Um, but like, yeah, I, I can't say enough about how impressed and proud as a human, how proud I am of ISRO and the Indian uh, space efforts. Like mm-hmm. they, they really, they have their own, approach to things. They're very pragmatic. Um, like, you know, the displays in mission control, uh, are very like outdated looking UIs, but they serve their purpose. So why update them there? Even the, the sound systems in, uh, in mission control sound like somebody's talking through a bullhorn at a protest. <laughs> um, but if it's clear enough to understand why why would you update? Like, I kind of love that that pragmatism they're showing. It, it's so cool to see another flavor of human space flight uh, growing and developing. Yeah. And, and, and I will say on air, uh, Gog and Jan can skip, we can slip five, 10 years and they'll still <laughs> uh, be on orbit before uh, Europe has their own homegrown. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <just send> people. <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. Right. So that, that gets us up to 2025. Now there was uh, a very like high profile political briefing um, between uh, Prime Minister Modi and one or, or and some of the leaders uh, of ISRO. And they laid out future plans for uh, India's uh, crude space and uncrewed space efforts. And we wanted to talk about those, but I wouldn't hold these uh, too close to your, uh, emotional core, because, uh, like I said, this was like, you know, for the public, let's, let's talk some big talk, but at least it gives us a little bit of glimpse as to what they are likely to be aiming for now. Right. So continuing future, uh, ISRO, uh, ambitions and in particular when it comes to human space flight, like you just said, given all those caveats, Ben, uh, they do, they have said now, uh, Narendra Modi, has said that they want to build a space station by 2035 called the uh, Bharatiya Antariksha Station. Can I comment on that name real quick? So Bharatiya uh, Bharataria is right both a political party, but it's sort of like when you say uh, U.S. American, it's like very nationalist. Um, this is the same word like a, a citizen of India, but in like a national context, um, which is very Modi, if you ask me. And then the uh, Antariksha, Antariksha. Yeah. Like, I feel like you said it right the first time. And I went, yeah, that's, that's how I pronounced it in my head. And then I went to say it and it's harder to pronounce. And then um, Antariksha is, uh, I mean, it means like space, right? Um, Like this literally means Indian space station. But I don't know if, if Antariksha is, it conjures like an Ayurvedic context for most Indian people who hear the word, or if it's been modernized enough that it's just accepted as the word for space. Um, but like within Ayurvedic belief, 
it has connotations that actually are more atmospheric than space. It's the middle space, not the the low space that humans are in or the high space that the stars are in. Um, so it's more about atmosphere and water in the air. Um, but it's just kind of interesting that I have no idea if this is helpful or correct observation, yeah. but it's kind of interesting that the word they use has ties to um, Ayurvedic beliefs and um, it may also be used to say like in uh, architectural terms, it describes a type of temple and, you know, it's elevating the temple. Like this form of temple is, you know, a, a high, like, associated with the air and the and the atmosphere but uh, the reason i point this out is because tiangong is it tiangong which yeah tiangong is the chinese space station yeah but is is there is it their space station that has the word temple in it or is it one of the capsules that they use oh i don't know uh, about. i think it's tiangong is heavenly temple i want to say is heavenly temple that's what i thought uh-huh. but it's kind of interesting that they this word may also include sort of a temple context in this like uh, architectural sense. And like, it's kind of interesting that two different, uh, countries have included that in their naming kind of like we're, we rever, uh, this, this place up above the, the earth. I don't know. It's, mm. it, it just kind of struck me that that, that, that those were the words that, and I'd never seen these words in this order. Like I had no idea if this is, is helpful at all, but that's no, interesting. Cause I, Israel is sort of well known for very direct named missions like yes <laughs> moonland moon gslv gslv yeah, yeah right mars spacecraft human spacecraft large uh, small satellite launch vehicle and so on yeah cool well i was gonna say i i, I hope uh you know even though we've still got over a decade uh you know even just with those stated ambitions 2035 uh i hope we can see some mock-ups though at some point um because that'll be very cool to see uh, another uh, spacefaring nations concept for their own space station. Yeah. And then uh, if that wasn't enough, uh, five years later, by 2040, uh, Indian astronauts will be on the moon. Yeah. As they could keep your fingers crossed and, uh, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the next stated idea. Um, I guess it's a logical, it's logical in terms of distance, but uh, right. We did it the other way around where we went to the moon first before building a space station, but I don't know which one ultimately was more we we wouldn't we wouldn't if we didn't have to right like the the politics were there to go to the moon the politics were not there for for skylab uh, or iss but it given given nasa's druthers i guarantee they would have felt a lot safer going to a space station it's a more natural progression yeah that is yeah that is true yep and then uh, when you're you know already stomping around on the moon uh, what's going to be next uh to go interplanetary. And so uh, this is, you know, of course, something that Israel has done before. They had their Magalhaen uh, spacecraft, also called the Mars Orbiter Mission, or MOM, which orbited the red planet between 2013 and 2022. Uh, but now they've talked about uh, an orbiter to Venus, which would be new for them, as well as a Mars lander, which, of course, you know, makes things that much more challenging to go and successfully land on Mars. That'll happen before the moon. I I, I think that's a, that's a yeah. good bet. Yeah. And then, you know, as part of this big statement, uh, they talked about having all sorts of, I guess, focus on other, you know, crew-related laboratories and technologies that should be able to support crewed spaceflight. Because once you do that, it's a lot more than just putting a person in a machine and sending them up into space. Uh, uh, you need to basically come up with all the things to keep them alive and well, uh, and especially with a space station, uh, all the complexities that that entails. But uh, very I guess more concrete and in one case, literally more concrete. They're also talking about getting a new launch pad and a next generation launch vehicle uh, there. And so uh, if I, as I understand and, it. And what's their next generation launch vehicle called? I don't know if it has a, if there's a name or anything. <laughs> Is it called no, next no, generation just, launch vehicle? <laughs> it's, it's NGL. <laughs> yeah. It's called next generation launch vehicle. That's funny. Yeah. So uh, that'll be cool. And uh Again, I hope to see some uh, some mock-ups and renders of that soon because that's always cool to see new uh, yeah. launch vehicles. So the, the only thing I want to point out here is that ISRO was sort of giving a briefing to Narendra Modi and they said 
uh, like they've got these um, Chandrayaan missions coming up. They've got the NGLV in the works. Um, they've got an NGLV launch pad and then all the like facilities that they're going to build. And then after that, Modi kind of replied to the briefing and said, also, I want you to uh, build a Venus orbiter, a Mars lander, and like focus on interplanetary stuff as well. And so uh, that is much more like a directive from the prime minister rather than uh, Isra saying, we've got this in the plans. But like, like we said, those things feel like they're just going to happen whether or not a prime minister wants them to like that. This is what space agencies do is we go and they go and do science. I can't include myself in that one. Uh, they, they go and do science and like, so it's, it's not like it's a crazy thing, but it, it was said by a different person, which I think is important to know. Okay, so let's just do two short and sweets this week. And Ben, what's the first? PLD did a test launch. So PLD Space launched their Mira 1 rocket on October 7th, reaching an altitude of 46 kilometers, shy of their declared 60-kilometer target. This week, they clarified that the vehicle's trajectory was altered the day before the launch, opting for more downrange velocity to decrease collateral damage in the event of a failure. PLD says they're quite happy with their engine performance. The booster descended under parachutes, but impacted the ocean at an angle, likely rupturing a tank and allowing the vehicle to sink. PLD plans to sign launch contracts as early as next year. Next up, two Vega payloads failed to deploy. Ariane Spas's Vega VV-23 launch successfully carried 12 payloads to orbit on its recent mission, with two primary payloads and 10 secondary ones. However, a recent press release has confirmed that two of the 10 secondary payloads did not deploy, with two CubeSats still attached to the Small Spacecraft Mission Service, or SSMS, dispenser, designed by SAB Aerospace and operated by Ariane Spas. Estonia's EST Cube 2 and Spain's Answer Leader SmallSats likely burned up with the upper stage during atmospheric reentry. All right, so moving on to this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have just one winner, Cy Kyle. Congratulations. Uh, I guess my clue was harder than I thought, but I think we only got like a couple of guesses. Uh, so I share your pain, Dennis. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got one correct answer, but coming up with a good clue, harder than you think. So the clue was nominal tumble. Um, and I guess this threw some people off, but the event was October 28th, 2009. It was the launch of the Ares 1X test vehicle uh, to test for the Ares 1, the you know eventual launch of Ares 1, which didn't happen. That's the event. And we'll get to the I guess, the relevance of the clue in a little bit. Ares 1 was part of the Constellation program, um, and uh, that was ultimately canceled in 2010. This test vehicle, um, it was only meant to test through first stage separation. That was it. So let's talk about the first stage. First, um, it had a a total of five segments, but it actually had four actual solid segments. The fifth one was kind of like, I guess they just didn't need it. Um, since, you know, they weren't putting anything all the way into orbit. So that was kind of like a dummy segment that uh, housed a first stage avionics module, um, which, you know, stored data that was collected during flight, um, although there was data that was also transmitted to ground. Within this little segment, it provided electrical power for the avionics, and it contained a camera to actually capture the stage separation. And as far as the motors and the solid motor rocket booster skirt, that was just taken from shuttle. So they kind of had that hardware lying around. And like, and as we all know, It's pretty similar. They used a lot of that for SLS. But they did make some modifications. The skirt was equipped with eight deceleration motors, um, which I think is interesting. And now this was in order to, you know, make sure that that first stage came back. It was like one of the things that was uh, supposed to ensure that the first stage came back in one piece. Although, as we'll discuss, it didn't quite make it entirely unharmed. Um, But yeah, this was to basically reduce the speed. And I think also to prevent it from actually colliding with the upper stage. And it also had four tumble motors. And that was to put the booster at a horizontal angle in order to decrease the velocity prior to reentry. So again, I think they really wanted to bring this first stage back in one piece. The upper stage, not so much. Uh, in fact, that fell into the ocean, sank as far as I know. But the first stage, they did want to get that back, although it was never planned to be reused. Yeah. And it had one of two of what are called redundant rate gyro motors. And I tried to look up exactly what redundant rate meant. Uh, do either of you know? Triply redundant sensors. I think it's just at least this one. Yeah, like I found. that's what, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, what I found. The, the only thing is that the motor, make the word motor at the end makes it sounds like the redundancy is in the motor. 
So it's like one rate gyro with redundant motors. But I don't think that it would be an official abbreviation if it was just the fact that it was redundant. You know, like you wouldn't stick the other, like you wouldn't call it a redundant rate gyro motor. Yeah. It would just be a redundant RGM or something, you know? Yeah, I agree with you. But uh, yeah, I think like you just mentioned, Dennis, I think it has to do with redundant sensors, perhaps. It's uh, something to do. Because, I mean, this thing was loaded with sensors, I think, all told. Um, I, didn't, I didn't put this in the notes, but it's around, I think, at least 750 or upwards of that. So you just, you know, like monitoring everything you can think of. We've talked about this many times before, you know, like when they do these types of test flights, they just want to collect as much data as possible. But, uh, yeah, and so getting back to some of the, the other things uh, that were a little bit different about the solid motor, um, there was also some ballast that was added to the aft skirt, and that was in order to shift the center of gravity for a proper tumble of the stage after separation, which it did do. And this gets to the clue, the nominal tumble. Um, The thing was supposed to tumble um, and the upper stage tumbled too, but that was good. That was actually predicted uh, to happen. Now the avionics were actually from the Atlas V. That's what was used. So as you can see, this is really a vehicle that was kind of pulled together from, I don't want to say spare parts in, you know, like leftover hardware, but kind of, I think it was really just to make sure that you have something that is the same size, shape, and mass as the actual flight vehicle those are the important things. I don't think it was really to test like any of the equipment on board per se, but rather to get as much information as possible on the flight dynamics. That was the main goal. Now, the upper stage mass simulator, uh, apparently from what I've read, and uh, this is the kind of thing where I read it and, and I go, I'm not sure about that. The actual flight hardware was maybe supposed to be used, but it wasn't ready in time. So like an actual like upper stage crew capsule and so forth. I can't imagine that that's true if you're doing a test like this, there's no need for that. And this is just a bit of information that I took from the Wikipedia article, so take that for what it's worth. And the uh, crew module and the launch abort system simulators were equipped with approximately 150 sensors. They recorded thermal, aerodynamic, acoustic vibration, uh, and just other data, it says. So like I said, a lot of stuff. One thing that was incorporated onto the upper stage was uh, the active roll control system. Two little motors that were mounted tangentially, and it was actually taken from a decommissioned Peacekeeper missile, or actually the hardware was. I shouldn't say it was taken from the missile, but it was the same hardware that was used on, you know, Peacekeeper missiles. Um, And this was needed to roll the vehicle 90 degrees after liftoff and maintain the attitude during ascent. Now, as far as trajectory estimation, this was actually like a big thing. And this gets into a lot of data that I cannot follow because when it comes to these types of things, I get lost really quickly. But uh, this was a combination of onboard ground-based and atmospheric measurements. So they actually had measurements that were made with balloons. um, And so they really wanted to characterize exactly the kind of atmosphere that the rocket was actually pushing through in addition to any data that was gathered from the rocket itself, which I thought was kind of interesting. So in the end, the the post-flight analysis showed that the pre-flight predictions were actually pretty accurate. There's a PDF that will be in the show notes that shows you uh, what those predictions were and then what was actually measured. And yeah, and so uh, the system that they used was um, the Iterative Extended Kalman Filter Algorithm, which I don't know if we've ever talked about that before, but this is something that's been used since I think like the 1960s or 70s. I think we've talked about Kalman filters before. Yeah. Just kind of in passing. I don't think we've gone too much into detail, but... Yeah, and there were some other modifications uh, made in this particular instance, but basically that's what they used in addition to some other... There's like MATLAB involved and... Oh, yeah, and then there was also NewStep. Have we talked about that? Maybe. A program called NewStep that is used to calculate what they call the BET, which I believe is the best estimated trajectory. Mm. Yeah, it's a MATLAB-based iterative extended Kalman filter code that computes. So yeah, it's it's part of that. Yeah, I, I remember New re- Statistical Trajectory Estimation Program is what it stands for. Yeah, I, I remember go. reading about this in the context of like, you know, when you when you play Kerbal Space Program, right? What's what's your launch trajectory going to be, right? And you just kind of, I don't know, you just do it yourself. Um, but like, yeah, there's there's software out there that allows you to really kind of, I guess, calculate and it and it estimates what the best kind of trajectory would be. It, it adjusts your trajectory accordingly. So it's not just like, here's the parabola, like, you know, here's the curve I want to follow during my launch. It's more like, you know, how do I adjust for if I'm, you know, under accelerating or there's loads on this side of the vehicle or there's winds and whatnot. Um, yeah, it's pretty neat. There's, there's, and there are some kind of big standard ones. And I wonder if new, if step or new steps, one of them. Interestingly enough, new step on NASA's like software, request library they say <laughs> they say that newstep is mostly written in matlab but there are a couple fortran 77 routines on a couple of special models <laughs> so um 
we can't get away hmm. from Fortran as a species. <laughs> Jeez, well, that's interesting because I'm reading here in the PDF that it says NewStep is coded entirely in MATLAB. Um, that's an interesting discrepancy. I, well, I I think it's just like it, it is, but if you want to pull in these special models, you get a little bit of Fortran in there too. Sure, yeah. So it's fair enough to say it's all MATLAB. So that's a little bit about the software that was used uh, to make these predictions and analyses. So I wanted to talk about thrust oscillation concerns as well. And uh, because I remember this going back to, I think, the Omega rocket. This is always a concern when you have a solid first stage. And I mean, just, you know, just a solid rocket motor for your first stage is that they're pretty violent. There were concerns that this would be too much for an actual human being uh, to comfortably fly through. I, I'm assuming that it would be survivable, but you might not be able to function too well if you like if you have to press buttons and so forth. There were some real concerns, but actually the levels of vibration were in line with a shuttle flight. So, you know, no worse than a shuttle flight, which actually is, I mean, I think it's pretty surprising. Because they shifted it over the one, you know, hole in the uh, mobile launch platform to like right because like right you basically have a single SRV so you can't center it on the launch platform you have to shift it over to the side so that it's over one of the holes where you then have the the water sausages and the water deluge system all doing its thing to kind of keep you from getting too bad mm -hmm. vibrations on it at least at the beginning there's less mass that it's oscillating against but then again maybe it's just there's only one solid this time and not you know a second solid plus three main engines that are contributing to the vibrations that your vehicle has. The idea being that you've got this SRB and instead of having to send up this, you know, small building worth of hydrogen and oxygen mm. fuel with a gigantic space plane attached to it, it's just sending up, you know, some boilerplate silliness above it. But like, yeah. but then again, it, you know, it has, you know, less than half the thrust that a shuttle stack would have. And admittedly, it has much less than half the weight, but I guess there's still enough weight on top of it for it to not like those oscillation those oscillations to go and really I guess shake the vehicle <laughs> all that much because right well yeah because I think it has to do with the fact that it's not mounted onto an external tank or anything like that that that's what causes because it, it's probably some kind of like a sympathetic vibration I would think maybe that's what the concern was yeah now you got me thinking I don't know if anything I said is actually helpful but like <laughs> yeah but like what you said makes sense yeah. yeah I imagine most of the oscillations are the longitudinal ones from just the thrust right but yeah suffice to say yeah, it was not an issue um, <laughs> now the uh, now the first stage right which they did want to recover uh, that did suffer some damage because it had three parachutes, uh, which I guess is just like a standard SRB, but only 1.5 of them opened, which is to say one, <laughs> one parachute completely deployed. And then there was another one that was kind of partially inflated. And this is because there was one parachute that had failed and uh, that had interfered with a second parachute. A reefing line had apparently been cut by like a device, which is supposed to cut the reefing line, but it had happened prematurely, probably due to vibrations during ascent. So I guess maybe the vibrations were too much, at least for the parachutes. <laughs> I think that when the parachutes deployed, that line had already been cut. And so it just never even inflated. It, it just, you know, was like streaming out there. Um, and I've seen a photo of it. I mean, it looks like a completely, not a completely cut off because it's still attached. But I mean, this parachute is not inflated at all. It's just, you know, kind of like flapping in the wind. So yeah, that impacted a second parachute. And so it really only had like one and half of the other to actually slow down the descent. That's really sad. The the parachute, the the main that... Uh, doesn't stay reefed properly. It looks like it pops. You can see why this is a great example of why, you know, you, you have a reefed parachute when you first deploy it and then get down to a lower speed and then you can safely deploy the, the thing just, it looks like a balloon just popping. And then one other thing that went wrong during first stage separation was that the forward skirt and the forward skirt extension did not separate properly. And, uh, so yeah, this is the, is it a frustrum? Is that what it is? A uh, Chopped off cone, right? We had talked about oh, that yeah, a couple yeah, weeks that, ago, I think. Yep. The SRB is one diameter. The upper stage is another. And so you have this frustrum that basically has to extend outward, uh, you know, like in order to join those two together. Um, and then there was also a forward skirt extension. I don't quite remember why that was added. I think, again, for possibly in order to simulate the launch correctly. Uh, due to the fact that they weren't using actual hardware. Uh, so they had to, you know, add this little extension. Those two pieces were supposed to separate. And they think that maybe they didn't separate correctly due to the connectors being pulled at an excessive angle. 
So you can imagine if you have two things that need to be pulled apart and you have like a pin in a slot, you can pull it directly out. But if you try to yank it out at an angle, it's not going to come apart. So that first stage hit the ocean at a high speed and a funny angle. Um, and this caused buckling. And, and the angle at which it hit was probably because of the parachute. Uh, because if you watch the video, it's rocking back and forth a lot. And so I'm assuming that it was supposed to kind of, you know, gently come in uh, straight into the ocean, but instead it hits it at an angle because it's just like swinging like a pendulum the whole way down. It actually caused some buckling in that first stage uh, once it was recovered. And in fact, uh, even before it was fully recovered, they sent divers down and uh, you could see the buckling. It looked not good. It's crazy how damaged it is. <laughs> yeah, if you hit the ocean hard enough and at the wrong angle, uh, you can you can kind of buckle it. And then also the additional mass of that fifth segment that might have also contributed to this. ATK, who had built, you know, the solid rocket boosters, they had suspected that by adding a fifth segment, uh, this might be an issue upon impact with the water. But uh, And so they were going to add a stiffener configuration. I don't know what that means, but, you know, something to, uh, I guess, rigidify, if that's a word. Uh, <laughs> Rigidize? Is that a word? Rigidize. There now. you go. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the right verb I was looking for. Rigidize. Now, talking about the, uh, the upper stage, it did go into a flat spin. So this is part of, I guess, kind of like, you know, the nominal tumble. And they think that part of why it went into a flat spin was because the stage separation had occurred at a lower altitude than like during a real flight. Also, more importantly, there was no engine on the thing. It wasn't going anywhere. So if you're just like, if it's just thrown into the air, it might start to tumble. But they had suspected that maybe this was due to a collision with the first stage, but that actually was ruled out pretty early because, uh, you know, they have all the data. There was no collision. And they had predicted that a flat spin was a possible scenario. Um, and indeed, that did happen. Let's talk about the pad damage. So pad 39B, this is where it was launched from. And I didn't get into, again, like all of the details about how much damage that was done because it was quite a lot. So if you look at the liftoff of the Ares 1X, it really launches at an angle. It pretty much tilts. It kind of reminds me of, uh, <laughs> whatchamacallit, the rocket, Astra. Oh yeah. The one that did the power slide. Uh, rocket. Yeah, the power mm. side. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. So this was done in order to avoid collision with the FSS, which is the fixed service structure. And uh, so it has to do this just during liftoff and then it quickly corrects with the TVC. But the downside of this is that it does spray a lot of exhaust onto the fixed service structure. So it does, you know, that exhaust does impinge on that service structure and it will cause damage. They kind of knew that, that was going to happen. They perhaps didn't know quite how extensive the damage would be, but it was pretty bad. The damage was first noticed by the SCAPE engineers and uh, the SCAPE, which I believe we had just discussed this not too long mm. ago too, the self-contained atmospheric protection ensemble or something like that. Uh, these are the people who go in um, in these suits in order to, you know, repair damage hypergon lines and things like that because you don't want to be breathing that in. So they had to do some repairs on the pad. They couldn't even get to where they had to get to because the elevators were damaged. There are two of them and they were both damaged. And there was one that was actually pretty severely damaged and it took several weeks in order to get that fixed. So they had to climb three flights of stairs, just you know, had to hoof it the old fashioned way. Well, which must suck in those suits. Then also the, the rotating surface structure, that was damaged. Uh, communication lines were damaged. So they had to kind of set up kind of like a little ad hoc system uh, in order to get communication with the pad um, and just a bunch of other stuff. Um, it had kind of like melted a lot of things completely and then just burnt a lot of other stuff. So I assume if this project or if this particular launch vehicle had gone forward, they would have made some changes to the pad, obviously. I mean, they were just launching from 39B because I guess it was available. It was the best one for the job. But clearly, yeah. you just don't want to launch an Ares rocket from a shuttle launch pad. Uh, didn't work out too well. Yeah. And was there that much servicing that was required on the pad? Because it's a, it's a solid, right? All the propulsion is a solid or are all solids, right? So like, yeah. So why not just put it on the far you know, where the right SRB would be. And then you don't have to go and destroy your however many hundreds of millions of dollars. Pack. I mean, I would assume because <laughs> there's a lot of other structure as far as, you know, lines that need to be connected to the vehicle and so forth that aren't available. That's a good question. Yeah, I'm not sure. You spend the extra million dollars to make those, you know, 40 feet longer. And then uh, you don't have to worry <laughs> about <laughs> destroying your whole pad. But because like with the, you couldn't use the uh, shuttle pad, like for the, proper Ares rocket, or at least for a stick like this, you couldn't put humans like where the boiler, where the uh, 
Right. This, this, this never, they were never going to fly something like this with humans, right? This is just a test, but the actual launch vehicle, I mean, how they developed the Ares it 1. It wouldn't look like this. Eventually, yeah. Or no, the Ares 1 would look like this. Yes, more okay, or less. Okay, the yeah. Ares 5 looks like a normal launch vehicle. I think that's what I'm getting confused about. That's all I meant by bringing up um, whether or not the Ares 1 with actual crew would look like this. Is Because even in principle, yeah, there's no crew access arm that's all the way up there. So you couldn't use... 39B or one of the shuttle pads for an Ares 1 launch anyway. Yeah, there are changes that would have been made. And, and I remember one was called, and I don't know if we've ever talked about this, the roller coaster. Do you remember that? Hmm. This is how uh-huh. you would get This is how you would get ground personnel away from the launch pad very quickly. So they would get in some kind of a, what looks like a roller coaster going from like the top of the structure to some safe location. Um, now, obviously, this was never developed, but uh, from the pictures that I saw, it kind of looks like a roller coaster. So like a wheeled cart on tracks up in the air. Um, yeah, like actual tracks that huh. look yeah, it looks it looks like a roller coaster. This rocket sits quite a bit taller than the shuttle would. So yeah, there's there's other structure that would be needed. And in fact for the ground personnel in order to get access to certain parts of the vehicle, the inside of the upper stage, um, it actually has internally, it has these little platforms and Mm. then it has ladders so that you can climb Mm. because there's no other way from the outside to get to where you're going. So you have to go inside and climb up the vehicle from the inside. Talk about an ill-fated vehicle. (laughs) Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I wasn't going in. That dog don't hunt. I mean, it's not as tall as the Saturn V, but it's, you know, significantly taller than shuttle. This was, what's it called? A pork barrel? Barrel of pork? Pork Yeah. Yeah, like it, this was uh, not conceived by somebody who wanted to design a rocket first. This was conceived by somebody who wanted to use some parts for political reasons. Yeah. Well, I think it was conceived by ATK, right? Or was that with Omega? Probably both. Pro- I or, mean, probably or, or both, whatever but ATK it doesn't. Was called at the time. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Like it, if ATK says, hey, we've got this whole this whole workshop set up to build this rocket. Let's go ahead and use it for something else. That's that's mm-hmm. totally valid. It's when Congress goes, yes, let's do this. Hey, NASA, go do this. NASA has to go, well, what are the practical, like, how are we actually going to make this work? And the only way to do it is by putting things on top. And now you've got a rocket that's taller than your service, your service facility. It's just, oh, okay, Dennis, I thought this was an Wait, that's not the actual. Just to be clear, we're watching a video of, uh, I guess, a rendering of what that roller coaster system would look like, and it and it looks like a roller coaster. Yeah, it doesn't look like a roller coaster. It is a roller coaster. <laughs> well, I mean, it like, looks like the kind that people roll or that people drop, you know, ride for fun. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, no, no, and you can do that with this too. It very much like the car that's on there looks like a modern, um, like sit above the car instead of sit inside the car. They play a sound effect that I swear to God is like straight out of like a roller coaster simulator game. That is a roller coaster is what that is. V- cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it. They might as well put a loop in there or something fun. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're joking, but like, it, honestly, like if this is the solution that you come to, you want a wheeled vehicle on a track. <laughs> um, I mean, where, what are you going to do? You go to the heritage and like theme parks have incredibly good um, safety uh, records for certain types of devices. And like there's a huge industry that designs roller coasters. Like why not? You you could even take some of their pre go buy some of their prefab structures like they're built for quick ingress and egress. Like everything is there. It's just it feels like being uh, having a bucket of cold water dumped in your face to actually see it. <laughs> like, and look, look carefully. It's got the fixed service structure in the middle, the rotating on the right, and then the Ares's own uh, mobile launch, uh, like the mm-hmm. like the L U like the L U T kind of uh, equivalent. Yeah, on the left. This is now a part of my alternate universe. Like, this is head <laughs> canon. I would have not thought in a million years we'd be talking about this. Like, it's such a thing. Makes sense, exists. right? Like, it totally makes sense. Like, it's it's a minecart, basically. Yeah. yeah, so it's a pretty crazy idea. But in conclusion, yeah, like Ares 1, yeah, just as you said, was destined to not be. But uh, at least it had a good test, one good test flight. And uh, that is your This Week in Space Flight History. Wow, David, that was quite a ride. 
Oh, <laughs> God. Thank you for that, Twisif. Ben, <laughs> you are up next. Next week is the 31st of October to the 6th of November. Do you have a clue for us? Yeah. So I'm going to preface this real quick. Um, I ordered a play date this week, and I'm not going to take the time to describe it. You can go to, I think it's play.date. It's really cool. Really excited about it. I watched a teardown. It's it's. Uh, hardware. So I, I watched a teardown because it looks like something that would come out of an open hardware project and it's not. And so I really wanted to see a teardown to see like how open it could be. And iFix It had a great teardown focused on repairability, which is like a big thing for open hardware. Um, and what's lovely is inside the Playdate, there's a sticker that says removing this sticker. It doesn't say you would expect the sticker to say, removing this sticker will void your warranty. But instead it says, this sticker is here to remind you that this is a delicately assembled device. And if you break it, you will void your warranty. And the warranty on this thing is voided if you break it, not if you open it up at all. And so next week in 2001, the clue is warning, removing this sticker will void your experiment. So removing the sticker will void your experiment. Inspired by a Playdate, which is a small <laughs> little game console sort of thingy. Uh, okay, well, you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing uh, in space, uh, or space adjacent, I hope. Uh, email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a tweet on Mastodon using the hashtag thisweeksf. Uh, right now, we only check federated toots on botson.space and spacey.space, but uh, you can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right, so let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. And we have five events. I think most of them launches just one spacewalk, but what's the first spacewalk, <laughs> which is also a spacewalk? Actually, two of them, right? Two, two of them, yeah. The, the first event here is Russian Spacewalk 61. We talked about this last week. I think the thing that I'm most excited about is they're deploying a solar sail uh, satellite, and like it combines two of my favorite things, solar sail satellites and throwing shit off of space stations. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> makes me happy. Um, so that is happening Wednesday, October 25th. The coverage on NASA TV starts at 1.45 p.m. The spacewalk is expected to actually begin at 2.10 p.m. And they're saying that they expect it to last for six hours and 45 minutes. And after that, on Thursday, we've got a uh, the sixth crewed flight to the Tiangong Space Station. And so this will be a Long March 2F taking the Shenzhou 17 crew to the space station. Uh, again, that's Thursday, October 26th, with a window from 0304 UTC to 0344 UTC, and it will be flying to Leo from Jiuquan Satellite Launch Center in the People's Republic of China. And then after that, on the 27th, we have the launch of Starlink Group 76, and this is, yep, launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5, and again, launching from Vandenberg. They seem to be doing a lot of launches from Vandenberg lately, from uh, Space Launch Complex 4E, and the launch time for that is uh, 659. UTC through uh, 1118 UTC. So that's a big launch window. And uh, yep, check that one out or the next one. <laughs> yeah, the, the launch window comes from a NOTAM, so it's it's big and wide. And disappointingly, because I always try to see if I can catch those, uh, this is the same beginning of the launch window as the last one, which is basically midnight local. And so the idea of me catching a launch at midnight, if I know it's going to be at midnight, is good. The idea of me catching the launch from midnight to 6 a.m. when you don't tell me when in that window it's going to be, not so nah. good. <laughs> After that, we have another Starlink, this time from the East Coast. It's two days later. It's Starlink Group 625 launching out of Slick 40 on a Falcon 9 Block 5. Um, again, we have some loose uh, timing associated with this one because the source is coming from Launch Photography launchphotography.com. So the timing on this one is also a little loose. Uh, the source is uh, launchphotography.com and they say around 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern. <laughs> so uh, pick your your commitment to this one uh, based on your willingness to uh, handle long launch windows. Um, but for 
uh, everyone who doesn't use Eastern time, this will be launching on Sunday, October 29th between 0100 hours UTC to 0500 hours UTC. And rounding things out, we have coverage of US Spacewalk 89. And so this will be uh, Jasmine Movelli and Laurel O'Hara uh, removing uh, radio frequency group hardware and replacing a trundle bearing assembly on the port truss. Uh, this is expected, uh, coverage will begin on NASA TV at 6.30 a.m. on Monday, October 30th, with the spacewalk itself expected to begin at 8.05 a.m. and lasting six and a half hours. Also, it's worth noting that Blue Origin is coming up on their return to flight mission, uh, NS-24. We don't know when they're actually going to do it. Uh, a few months ago, they said that they were going to try to get it done before the end of October. Or they're going to do it uh, no earlier than October. Um, so we're we're like maybe coming up on that. Uh, keep an ear to the ground. Maybe they will announce and launch uh, quicker than we can respond with our weekly show. Um, but those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And so that means it's time to do with the show. And we would like to thank Roland Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris, Mr. Cesium, Mike, Colin, Astro, and Delta V for joining our recording sessions today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. Uh, you can also visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.